The Book of the Prophet Habakkuk. He lived during the final decades of Israel's southern kingdom, and it was a time of injustice and idolatry. He saw the rising threat of Babylon on the horizon, and that was not good news for anybody. But unlike the other prophets, Habakkuk does not accuse Israel. He doesn't even speak on God's behalf to the people. Rather, all of his words are addressed personally to God. And the book tells about Habakkuk's personal struggle, his journey of trying to believe that God is good when there is so much evil and tragedy in the world. And so Habakkuk's words are actually poems of lament, and they're very similar to the laments that you find in the book of Psalms. The poet lodges a complaint and then draws God's attention to suffering or injustice in the world, demanding that God do something. And knowing about this lament form, it's actually the key to understanding the design and message of this short book. Chapters 1 and 2 are framed as a back-and-forth argument between Habakkuk and God. And the prophet lodges two complaints to which God offers two responses. His first complaint is that life in Israel has become horrible. The Torah is neglected, resulting in violence and injustice, and it's all being tolerated by Israel's corrupt leaders. And Habakkuk, he's crying out, asking God to do something, but nothing seems to change. But then all of a sudden, God responds. He says that he's very aware of the corruption of his own people, Israel, and that he's summoning the armies of Babylon to bring down his justice on Israel. And very similar to the message of Micah or Isaiah, God says he will use this terrifying empire to devour Israel because of their injustice and evil. But Habakkuk has a problem with this answer, and so he offers his second complaint. He says Babylon is even worse than Israel. They're more corrupt. They're more violent. They've deified their own military power. They treat humans like animals, gathering them up like fish in a net, he says. They devour nations and people groups in order to build their own empire. And so Habakkuk says, how can you, a holy, good God, use such corrupt nations as your instruments in history? He demands an explanation. In fact, he depicts himself as a watchman on the city walls waiting for God's response, which eventually comes. God tells Habakkuk to get out some tablets and chisel and write down what he sees and hears. It's a vision about an appointed time in the future, that even though it may seem slow in coming, it will eventually come. In fact, God says that the righteous person will live by their faith in this hope and vision. So what is this divine promise that Habakkuk is supposed to write down? It's that God will bring Babylon down. God says that the violence and oppression of the nations creates this never-ending cycle of revenge and that God will use this cycle to bring about the rise and fall of nations. And the fact that God might for a time use a corrupt nation like Babylon does not mean that he endorses everything that they do. He holds all nations accountable to his justice. And so Babylon will fall along with any other nation that acts like them. God's promise is then elaborated by a series of five woes that describe the kinds of oppression and injustice that's perpetrated by nations like Babylon. The first two target unjust economic practices, like how wealthy people will charge ridiculous interest just to keep poor people in debt, and so they build their wealth through crooked means. The third woe is a critique of slave labor, treating humans like animals and threatening them with violence if they don't produce. The fourth woe targets the abuse of alcohol by irresponsible leaders. While people are suffering under their bad leadership, they're partying and wasting their money on sex and booze. 
And the last woe exposes the idolatry, the engine that drives such nations. They have made money and power and national security into their gods, offering these allegiance at all costs. And so people become slaves to their own national empire. Now the practices described here aren't unique to Babylon, but that's part of the point. Given the human condition, most nations eventually become Babylon. And so this is how God's answer to Habakkuk in this book becomes God's answer to all later generations, to anyone who lives in a world ruled by other Babylons. But it leaves the question hanging. Is God going to let this cycle, the rise and fall of Babylon-like empires, go on forever? And that question is what chapter 3 is about. We're told that this is a prayer of Habakkuk, and it begins by Habakkuk pleading with God to act now in the present like he has in the past in bringing down corrupt nations. And what follows is a very ancient poem. It first describes a powerful, terrifying appearance of God. It's very similar to the opening poems of Micah and Nahum, and similar to the appearance of God at Mount Sinai in the book of Exodus. There's cloud and fire and earthquake. When the Creator shows up to confront human evil, everybody will be paying attention. Habakkuk then goes on to describe this future defeat of evil as a future exodus. So just like God came as a warrior and he split the sea in his battle against Pharaoh, Habakkuk says that God will once more bring his judgment down on the head of the evil house. So Pharaoh, like Babylon, has become here an archetype of violent human nations. But at the same time, we're told that when God confronts evil, he will save his people and his anointed one. It's a reference to the king from the line of David. And so in this poem, the Exodus story of the past has become an image of the future Exodus God will perform. He will once again defeat evil and bring down the pharaohs and the Babylons of this world. He'll bring justice to all people and rescue the oppressed and the innocent. And it's this hope that enables Habakkuk to conclude the book with hopeful praise. Even if the world's falling apart with food shortage or drought or war or whatever, he will choose trust and joy in the covenant promises of God. And so Habakkuk, by the end of this book, becomes a shining example of how the righteous live by faith. Habakkuk recognizes just how dark and chaotic the world and our lives can become, and he invites us into a journey of faith, of trusting that God loves this world more than we do, and that he will one day deal with its evil. And that's what the book of Habakkuk is all about. Good morning. How are you guys? Good. It's good to be with you. So I am not naturally a sweaty person. I know that all of you are like, you know what? I got up, I came to church, and it was burning on my mind. And I'm really glad that you laid that to rest. And you have to, I know you're all grateful for some clarity on that this morning. No, but in all seriousness, I am not a naturally, like, sweaty person. I sweat like a normal person, but I, I'm not like, I don't, anyways, I don't sweat very much. My best friend growing up, had a little bit of a problem with this. Uh, she sweat like profusely and like all the time. 
And so it's like a 15, 16 year old, you know, like trying to like help a friend out, figure it out. So we, we found this stuff called, <laughs> called certain dry. If you know what I'm talking about, don't shift in your seat. Don't make eye contact. Just if you know what I'm talking about, it's this stuff that's supposed to help you not sweat. So we got it for her and she used it, you know, and she stopped sweating. It was amazing. She stopped sweating out of her armpits and started like pouring sweat out of her hands. I mean, just like soggy, wet sponge. I mean, profuse sweating out of her hands. So just consider that one for free. <laughs> Certain dry. Use at your own risk. Anyways, so all, why am I talking about this? All of this to say, <laughs> I was sitting at the doctor's office the other day. I'm not naturally a sweaty person. And I haven't been to the doctors in like three years. So it was like time, you know, like things that I like haven't dealt with. And uh, I need to go to the doctors to make sure that like healthy, it's fine. And I am sitting in the waiting room sweating bullets. Like just, I felt like my friend. And I'm like, rub, I kept rubbing my hands on my pants and I had black pants on and my hands were all black. And I was like, she's, I don't know if she's going to think that's a weird thing or like... It made me so nervous. It made me so nervous. Why am I talking about this? <laughs> uh, when we look at books like Habakkuk and we talk about the justice of God and we talk particularly about the judgment of God towards evil, we sweat in church. We hate talking about it. It makes us nervous. Uh, the way I picture it is like a baby who you're like trying to feed and you're just like, <laughs> like, it's like we need to deal with this and we're like, no, <laughs> avoid eye contact. <laughs> like, just, we hate it. We hate talking about the judgment of God for evil in the world. So yay. <laughs> we get to talk about it. And I just, I want to say this before we dive in. Um, there's no notes today. And I don't know that this is going to be a teaching. I don't know that this is going to be a preaching. It's more just going to be, we're just going to, we're going to talk about it. And uh, because it's hard. It makes you nervous. It makes me nervous. But through unpacking this book, there's a lot of hope and peace to be found in a really difficult conversation. Would you pray with me? Jesus, uh, would you lead us this morning? God, we are so we need your help um, because this, this conversation feels big and it feels hard and it feels like one that there's a lot of reasons we don't even want to have it. And yet we know that it's a big 
part of life. We know that it's a big part of knowing you. Um, and so I just ask, God, would you help us? Everybody in this room is in a different place when it comes to this topic. And so, Jesus, I just pray that you would lead us and speak to us, speak your truth about who you are um, as we unpack that this morning. And everybody said, amen. Uh, yeah, my hope for this morning is that we can have a conversation about a hard thing. And uh, the title on the screen says Habakkuk, uh, the justice of God, which is true. That's what we're going to talk about. But if you're taking notes, uh, I think a more appropriate title of the conversation that we're going to have is getting to know God. Getting to know God. Uh, this is a passage from a book that I'm reading right now. It says, Somebody once told me that we will never feel loved until we drop the act, until we are willing to show our true selves to the people around us. When I heard that, I knew it was true. I'd spent a good bit of my life as an actor getting people to clap, but the applause only made me want more applause. I didn't act in a theater or anything. I'm just talking about real life. The thought of not acting pressed me like a terror. Can we really trust people to love us just as we are? Nobody steps onto stage and gets a standing ovation for being human. You have to sing or dance or something. I think that's the difference between being loved and making people clap, though. Love can't be earned, it can only be given. And it can only be exchanged by people who are completely true with one another. I shouldn't pretend to be an expert, though. I didn't get married until I was 42, which is how long it took me to risk being myself with another human being. But here are two things I found taking the long road, though. Applause is a quick fix, and love is an acquired taste. That's from a book called Scary Close by Donald Miller. Uh, I start with that because Habakkuk is an interesting book. It's not prescriptive. It's not something that we read that's going to tell us something that God wants us to do. Uh, it's not even like a typical book of the prophets that God gives a message to the prophet that the prophet is supposed to then communicate to the nation. It's none of those things. Habakkuk is an honest conversation between one man and God. And what does he want to talk about? Habakkuk has an honest conversation with God about the problem of evil and sin in the world. So this morning, rather than getting into like the nitty gritty details of the book, like we've been able to do in other books, we're going to like take a big step back and look at the big picture of this book. We're gonna look less at what it says and more about what's happening in this book. 
I want us to see what Habakkuk is doing. Habakkuk is getting honest with God. Getting honest about hard questions about life, hard questions about God, hard questions about the world. And in his honesty, we get to watch Habakkuk not just know all of the right things to do to gain the applause of having it all together. But we get to watch Habakkuk get to know God. The difference between having answers and looking like we have it all together in a hard conversation, like the judgment of God for evil in the world, feeling like we have it all together versus getting honest about that is a very hard and involved thing. And finding God in that and getting to know more of who he is. That's the choice. We can either be people who have simple and thin answers for the world about God's judgment towards evil. Or we can wade into the waters of honesty. We can ask God honest, hard questions about evil. And we can allow him to take us on a journey. Maybe, like Habakkuk, we will find God and answers on that road and find an experience of the love of God that can only be found in that honesty. So that's, that's kind of the journey that we're on this morning. Uh, so jumping into the book, Habakkuk. The book opens in chapter 1, And Habakkuk starts his conversation, and this is what he says. (laughs) He cries out to God, and he sees the injustice and the corruption of the people of Israel. The people of God are walking in utter evil corruption injustice. And this is how Habakkuk starts his conversation with God. Why aren't you doing anything? (laughs) The world is so evil. Where are you? He just jumps right in. And uh, in in verse 1, 4, it says, The law is paralyzed, and justice never goes forth. The wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. God, judge evil. (laughs) Stop this from happening. And so God responds, and this is his response. He says, don't worry. I'm going to bring judgment on the wickedness of these people, and I'm going to do it. I'm going to raise up Babylon, and they're going to overtake Israel. And what's Habakkuk's response to this? Don't do that. Don't do it that way. In other, 
He says in verse 113, it says, You whose eyes are purer than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? In other words, he's saying, you're going to judge a wicked nation by using a more wicked nation? I hate that idea. <laughs> like, that sounds terrible to me. And this is like a familiar journey, right? Because we want God to hate evil. We want him to do something about the problem of evil. And then when God does judge evil, we're like, wait, 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 wait. <laughs> Not that way. I mean, I want you to judge evil, but I want you to do it in a way that I feel comfortable with. The problem is there will never be a way that we feel comfortable with it. Have you ever had a moment like that? Where you're desperate for God's judgment and you're confronted with the reality that maybe I don't even trust God's judgment. Have you ever put God on trial? I have. I, um, you guys know this about me. I, I was living in Montana for a season, and I was doing a school out there, and there was a week, and I was studying the book of Jeremiah, and... Jeremiah begins with God calling Jeremiah as a young man to be a prophet to Israel, to tell Israel to repent from their wickedness, to stop walking in wickedness and to turn back to the way of life. He's called as a young man. This is chapter one. Jeremiah is one of the longest books in the Bible. It is 53 chapters. And in chapter 7, so early on in the story, God says this to Jeremiah. He says, hey, I've called you to be a prophet to the nations, to tell the people to repent. You're going to give your life for it. But oh, by the way, no one is going to listen to you. <laughs> like, sorry to let the cat out of the bag. You're going to give your life away for something that's not going to work. But that's what I asked you to do. I, I mean, oh, guys. <laughs> I was reading this. I'm in a, my classroom. It's a portable, alone. It's the middle of winter in Montana, so not a soul is outside because they're sane. They don't want to die. They're all inside other buildings. I am alone, and I am like railing God as I'm reading this. I'm so angry. God, why would you do that? Why would you call him as a young man and tell him to give his life away, to already do a really, really hard thing, and then tell him at the front end of things, oh, by the way, it's not even gonna work. Like that to me, I was like, that sounds mean. <laughs> that sounds like 
God, you're just in, you just want him to be obedient because you're just an insecure leader and you want to like keep people under your thumb and just like even if it's not going to work, you have to just like do what what I tell you to do because I'm God and just get over it. I mean, I was upset. <laughs> I was upset. And I'm like yelling. I'm actually yelling out loud and I say, "Why would you do that?" <laughs> Why did you do that? And he just spoke so clearly. He just said, I was trying to put my heart inside of him. Okay, so what do you mean? (laughs) What do you mean by that? (laughs) I wanted him to know what it would be like, what it meant to give your life away for people regardless of their response to you. I was trying to put my heart inside of him. Whoa. (laughs) Okay. But it's this moment, it's this exposing moment, right? God, I don't trust you. I thought I did. <laughs> but I guess I, I don't, because I don't understand this, and I don't like the way that you did this, because it's hard and because it hurts. I don't, I don't know if I trust you. Here's the thing. When it comes to the problem of evil in the world and it comes to the judgment of God against that, we oftentimes have this moment of panic inside because we're not actually sure if God, God loves people. We don't, we have a hard time trusting the justice of God and his judgment for evil because we don't actually know if we trust that God loves people. Why do we have a hard time with that? I think there's two major reasons we have a hard time with that. And and we see both of them in Habakkuk's story. The first is just like what Habakkuk experienced. Habakkuk's context was the people of God, the leaders of Israel, were walking in utter corruption. His only grid for people is corrupt. His only grid for people is selfishness. His only grid for people people don't know how to love very well. But not only that, God's people, they don't love very well. I don't know if I can trust them. And this is our own story too, right? 
we have a hard time trusting that God loves people because we see people not love people very well. We have a hard time, for some of us, we have a hard time trusting that God loves people because the church hasn't done a good job loving people very well. And so we don't trust their judgment. We don't trust their justice. Because we see people, and instead of people hating evil and loving people, they hate evil and they hate people, and the only thing that they seem to love is being better than everybody else. This is real. (laughs) This is our experience. And so we have a hard time trusting the judgment of God against evil because we're not sure if he actually loves them. Judging evil also becomes a sticky thing because it involves people. We can only judge evil so far until we start to see ourselves in the sin of others. Or we see people we love in the sin of others. Have you ever made a terrible decision? Have you ever done something wrong at the expense of someone else? Have you ever devalued another person? Has someone you love ever made a terrible decision? Judgment for evil becomes sticky in a moment like that. And we, we're so aware of the evil and brokenness in the world around us. We're so aware of the evil and brokenness in our own lives and in the lives of people we love. And we don't trust that God loves people. And so we panic. We bury our head in the sand. We don't talk about it. We have to talk about it. Your own heart and your own life is desperate for us to have this conversation. The world around you is desperate for us to have this conversation. We have to know what do we think about the heart of God and his heart towards people and his heart towards injustice, things that hurt people. We have to know have to know. We have a hard time trusting the love of God because we see skewed, faulty human love. We see skewed, faulty church human love, and we're so aware at how close to home evil and brokenness and sin is. So what do we do? 
we have to get out of fear and go back to the beginning. We have to get out of the mess like Habakkuk does. He's like, but there's corruption everywhere, and but, 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 I just, ah, I don't trust, and I don't know what to do, but I know that there has to be judgment for evil, but I'm just, ah. And in chapter three, what does he do as he's working out this process with God? He starts using this language, and he starts talking about the cosmic creator God. He starts saying, you who put the rivers into motion, these rivers that carved caverns through mountains. You are the creator, and it's just bringing him back. He's reminding himself of the beginning of the story, not the mess in the middle of the story. What's the beginning of the story? The beginning of the story is that God created people because he wanted them. God created people because he loves them. God put impossibly amazing, unimaginable potential and creativity and life inside of human beings and gave them a world to express that in. And humanity in our brokenness became selfish and self-concerned and everything unraveled. And in sin and evil and self-concerned and human-driven reality, death and brokenness just everywhere. And what what was the response of God? I'm gonna judge evil. But why? (laughs) To save you. I'm going to judge the things that bring death into your life because my mission has always been I want you alive. I want you full of life. I don't want things in your life that are going to hurt you. I don't want things in your life that are going to hurt other people. I want life for you. So I have to judge evil because I, I will never stop fighting for life for you. The beginning of the story is where God is for us first and not against us. This has to be the place we go to when we start mistrusting the judgment and the justice of God. We have to go, but what the beginning, not just what I'm seeing and not just my own experience with broken humanity, what is the beginning of the story? The beginning of the story is that God is for us and not against us. And he hates evil because he hates that it hurts people. This is why we have a hard time trusting the judgment of God. But that's the way we move towards finding a way to trust it again. The second reason I think we don't trust God's judgment is because we have a skewed understanding of holiness. And now everybody's like, now we're at church. Holiness. Jeez, Meg. Churchy word. Holy, but really, we we have to get this. This is like, this is huge. We have to get, if we don't get anything right, we have to get this holiness. If you've spent a minute in church in your life and you've heard someone talk about holiness, you've probably heard them talk about it in terms of being set apart. 
God is holy, God is set apart from the evil and brokenness in the world, he's pure, and the world is impure and tainted because of sin, he is whole, the world is broken, and he is set apart from all the mess. He's holy. Mess down here, holy and whole up there. This understanding of holiness is problematic. It's not that there isn't an element of truth to it. It's just that it's not the whole truth. And because of that, it gives us a skewed understanding of holiness. What gets skewed in this? It's not that God is good. God is good. It's not that God is pure. God is... But the problem with being set apart, being the foundational understanding we have about holiness is that it also suggests that God is distant. That he is separate. That the messy, broken world is over here and God is over here. And that God stays up in his holy cloud in the sky and rains down judgment on messy humanity. How many of you know that it's really hard to trust someone who has no skin in the game? So goodness and purity and not being sinful and evil is a good thing, (laughs) but distant, that's not helpful. So Habakkuk, as he's working through this, he questions the questions that he's asking uh, to God about evil and where is God and, and judgment. Is judgment a good thing or a scary thing? He makes this statement. He says in Habakkuk 1.13, it says, Your eyes are too pure to behold evil, and you cannot look on wrongdoing. God, you're so holy that you are uninvolved with evil. You can't even look at it. And for us, people have taken this verse and just pulled it out. (laughs) And that's where we get this definition of God is set apart in his holiness. That he can't even, God is so good he can't be in the presence of sin. The problem is that's only half of the verse. (laughs) It says, your eyes are too pure to behold evil, and yet you you cannot look on wrongdoing. Why do you look on the treacherous and are silent when the wicked swallow those more righteous than they? Habakkuk is learning something about God. I know you're holy, And I know you're different. And I know that your goodness somehow needs to invade the corruption that we live in. But I need you to be involved. Set apart is only a part of holiness. A better definition we can have for holiness is actually different. How do we know this? So in the 
in ancient times, there's so many different people groups. There's so many different gods and goddesses. There's so many different ways of thinking. There's the god of the rain. There's the god of the ground. There's the god of fertility. There's the god of happiness. There's the, there's the goddess of grain. There's and all of these gods, people relate to in a way where they feel like they have to manipulate the god in order to get what they need, get what they want, or they view that they're being manipulated by these gods. These gods are up there, we are down here, we are at their mercy, we can hope and pray and see if we can twist their arm to get what we need. So in the scriptures, when this language enters in, they start saying that God, the God of Israel, is holy. What they're saying is God, the God of Israel, he is different. He is different than that. He is not manipulative. He is not capricious. He is not self-concerned. He is not insecure. He is good. He is pure. He is true. He is loving. He is kind. He is a servant. God is holy. God is different. He is different than these other gods and these ideas that we serve, and he is different than broken people. God isn't holy because he's set apart and separate from the messiness of the world. God is holy because of who he is. I'm going to say that one more time. God is not holy because he is separate and set apart from the messiness of the world. God is holy because of who he is. So this begs the million dollar question. Who is he? Who is he? How is he different? What is he like? Habakkuk says, surely your eyes are too pure to look upon evil. And what is God's response to Habakkuk? Watch me. And not only will I look upon it, watch me roll up my sleeves and get intimately and intricately involved in the process of judging the evil that is hurting people for the sake of setting people free and bringing life to people I desperately care about. God is not holy because he is separate from messiness. God is holy because he barrels right into the middle of sinful humanity and redeems it from the inside out by judging evil that hurts people and fighting for life for people. This is the holiness of God. When God is distant and the things about him like his goodness and his purity that we are desperate for in the midst of evil times and spaces and injustice in our world and in our lives. When God is distant and has no skin in the game, it is so hard to trust his judgment. It's so hard. What makes God holy? What makes God holy is that he can hate evil and love people. 
What makes God holy is that he doesn't leave people alone to die. What makes God holy is that he comes and judges evil to save people, not to crush them. What makes God different? His deep love for people. What makes God different is that he gets involved. What makes God different is that he hates things that hurt people, that he fights for life. So Habakkuk goes on an honest journey with God, asking hard questions about life and evil and God. And he wrestles through his doubts about the goodness and the justice of God. And what happens? Habakkuk gets to know God. Not just about him, gets to know him. A God who loves people, a God who hates evil, and yet who is committed to people and committed to judging evil for the salvation of people. A God who is not far and distant, but close in the freedom process, freeing people from the bonds of injustice and evil and bringing them back to life. Habakkuk 3.13, we see his aha moment. He says, in the midst of your judgment that you say you're going to bring, he says, I now understand you went out for salvation, for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed, you crushed the head of the wicked. God, you judge evil for the salvation of people, not because you hate people. Habakkuk ends this way. It says, Though the fig tree not blossom, nor the fruit be on the vines, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. And he makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on high places. What's he saying? I've come to a place where I have peace to trust that you are a God who fights for life. And even if I look at the tree and I don't see it blossoming, and even if there's so much I can't see, I believe that that is true. And I will hang on to that hope. Habakkuk says the righteous will live by faith. That God is for people. That his judgment against evil is for people. And I can have peace because I can trust you. I'm going to invite the the worship team back up. We get to end today with communion. Which in light of our conversation is fitting. When we talk about the hard conversation of God's judgment towards 
evil? Can we trust his heart? When we come to this table, when we remember Jesus, the embodiment of this holiness of God, right? That he literally puts on skin of the fallen people who are stuck in their brokenness to redeem them, to to bear the judgment for their sin for the sake of the life of the world. When we look at this table, God has skin in the game. He cares about us. He cares about people. wonder if God loves people because you know that he hates sin look at Jesus God hated evil so much but he loved people so much that he put on skin to pour out his judgment for evil on himself so that it wouldn't be on us because he loves us that much We can trust the judgment of God. Because at every turn, he fights for life for people. So as you come and participate in communion today, Dean's gonna lead us in a song and you guys are gonna be free once I, once I get out of here uh, to come up as you feel like you want to. You can bring it back to your seat. You can share it with somebody next to you. You can have a moment with God alone. What does this all mean for the church? The problem when we don't deal with our hangups about the judgment of God for evil, the problem that happens when we bury our head in the sand in that conversation is the church becomes invisible in the world. We become invisible in two ways. We become invisible because we have a skewed idea of holiness, so we just remove ourselves from the world, and we're not actually helpful to people who need help. Or we, like everyone else, live in this place of wonder of, can I trust the love of God? You know that's the question the world is asking? Especially when they look at Christians. Can I trust the love of your God? Guys, when you come to this table today, be reminded, this is why we can trust him. This is why. We can have peace and clarity and we can be love and hope to people. We can be holy and different like he is holy and different and barrel into the midst of broken places 
bring life and be present with people. So I'm going to pray, and then you guys can come forward as you feel led. Jesus, thank you for who you are, God. God, even in in ancient texts, in ancient times, and in the book of Habakkuk, God, that you, you show us and you showed Habakkuk that, no, I'm not not involved. Yes, I'm going to barrel right into the midst of your problems and your pain and your sin. And I'm going to help you and I'm going to be present and I'm going to judge the evil that's hurting you and I'm going to bring you back to life. And yet, Jesus, when we look at Jesus, you are the fullness of that, God. God, that your heart from the beginning to Jesus to now has always been for people and to hate evil in the world that brings death into their life. And I thank you for your kindness to help us wade through hard things, God. And I pray for everyone in this room. This, this is just the beginning of a conversation. The rest of our lives is a conversation, Jesus, of learning how to trust your heart. And as we get to know your heart, that we could hold it out to a world that is desperate for hope. So would you meet us at this table today, God? Would you remind us of the depth of your love? That we can trust you.